You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here, back with another Dose of Dangerous History, and this is going to be episode 159 of the Dangerous History Podcast, which will be part three of a modern-day Grunt's Perspective, the third part of my conversations with Army veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, BT. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of the major events and experiences that occurred during the remainder of his deployments to Iraq and also his deployment to Afghanistan. And towards the end, we also start to get into some of the things he's been dealing with ever since he got out of the army in terms of psychological and medical issues and difficulties getting the help that he needs from the VA and so on. Although because of the constraints of time, we didn't have time to fully delve into that and uh, he didn't get a chance to share everything he wants to share about that stuff. So we are planning on doing one more episode together and that will probably be at least a month or so down the road. And the reason for that is because he's actually moving right now. He's getting ready to move and then he'll be moving. And then of course he'll be settling into his new home with his family. So obviously he won't have a lot of spare, quiet opportunities to talk with me over Skype. But real quick, before we get into this episode, I do have someone to thank for signing up over at Patreon to help support the Dangerous History Podcast. Big thanks to Thad for stepping up to support the show, and as a reminder to all of you out there in listener land, I hope you'll consider supporting the show via Patreon, because if you do, for five bucks a month or more, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I produce, and you'll also have access to special bonus episodes there, available nowhere else, and you will get regular DHP episodes a little bit early, and also ad-free as well, and you can join our private Facebook group. And also, you will have access to the first 52 episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast that are now no longer available anywhere else. I call them Vintage DHP. And while the audio quality isn't always the greatest on some of those early episodes, I think the content still is pretty solid and stands the test of time. So that's just another bonus you get by supporting the show via Patreon, and I hope you'll consider doing so if you're not doing it already. As I've mentioned a few times in recent episodes, I'm currently trying to get to 1500 a month from Patreon, and if I can do that, I can stop teaching summer school, and this will then free up a significant amount of time for me to devote to the podcast and other related projects. So if you want to get all those bonus materials and benefits, and you also want to try and help enable me to do more Dangerous History podcasting, please consider going over to patreon.com slash profcj to help me out. And I have one more thank you as well, a listener who was kind enough to get me something off of my Amazon wish list. Big thanks go out to John for getting me the very interesting looking book, 
Exit Voice and Loyalty, which is actually a book that I heard Thaddeus Russell mention somewhere, maybe on his his own podcast or someplace else. But it's an interesting book that deals with trying to analyze and understand the ways that people who are in or are dealing with dysfunctional organizations, including businesses and governments and other organizations as well, the ways in which they try either to fix those things or in some cases leave the dysfunctional organization and go elsewhere. So looks like an interesting book. So thanks, John, for that. And as always, I'll have a link to my Amazon wish list in the show notes if any of you are so inclined to want to get me a book or something to help me out in my research for the show. Some of those books on there, you know, I don't have imminent plans to do episodes related to them. Some of them I do. But regardless, it's just more food for my brain to help me come up with new and interesting ways of looking at things and explaining things and talking about things. So it's always much appreciated when I get something off of that Amazon wish list. So here we go. I present to you part three of a modern day grunts perspective. BT, welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thanks, CJ. Appreciate you having me back again. Before we jump back into your deployment and get into some of your stories uh, from Iraq, I wanted to ask you, since I think since we last spoke, the Super Bowl occurred, and all throughout the NFL season, all we kept hearing about was the controversy over players kneeling during the national anthem and all these sorts of things, and Obviously, this kind of ties back into some of the stuff we've talked about previously, but I wanted to get your take on that controversy and how everyone's dealing with it. The controversy over the kneeling for the flag, to me, is pretty much just political smokescreen because I really dislike it when people try to attach the troops or anything else to a particular social occurrence that is going on in this case being the kneeling for the national anthem i for one i don't see any reason whatsoever how kneeling during the national anthem equals you hate the troops especially if you're not wearing a shirt that says i'm kneeling because i hate the troops it it's it's absurd to me and it's really angering because you take the real problems, whether either it's the the Black Lives Matters movement, the kneeling for the flag, or just soldiers in general, you conduct a little logical fallacy where you attach uh, meaning to something that the meaning isn't there originally. I've never once been offended by somebody kneeling. You you could burn the flag in front of me. I, I could really care less. I think we talked about it before. George Carlin says, you know, Flags are symbols, and I think they should be treated as symbols. They're not idols. Yeah, do you, do you find it, or I don't, I don't want to try to put words in your mouth, but how, how does it make you feel as a veteran when various people and groups 
try to like speak for all veterans or to use veterans as like a lever for their own political agenda. Um, how does that make you feel in general when people do that? My local congressman, I, I don't remember his name, but I had started sending correspondence with them to try to help me with some issues that I was having with the VA. And essentially, they did nothing at all. Essentially, me asking specifically for help with tr- as being a soldier, and I didn't receive any. But then in the little weekly emails that they send out that I've been signed up for, they'll say like, oh, we're doing this for the troops, and oh, we're doing this for the troops. And I feel like the troops is probably one of like the last play cards that you have, because if anybody was actually paying attention to the fact that nobody is actually controlling what the VA does, something that Congress can have perfect control over, nothing actually happens that is benefiting us with the the whole government shutdown thing. They're like, oh, well, you're going to take money away from the troops, which happens every time that they have one of these government shutdowns. I remember when, when, when was the last or the big time that the government shut down? I think it was like 2008. Um, something like that. I, th- I think it might've been slightly later, like a little bit into Obama's presidency. Yeah. Okay. No, it was during, uh, it was during Obama's presidency. I remember I was trying to make shirts that said I survived the, uh, the government shutdown of whatever year. I mean, for us, I think it's really appalling to use such a dynamic group as soldiers because with everybody, with every group, there's not one type of person. Everybody's a uh, different character, which is one of the reasons why just like, you know, support the troops is one of the phrases that I really hate because I always want to ask people like, you know, what does that mean to you? Like you say, I support the troops, but what does it actually mean? I mean, besides having an empty kind of promise statement, I tried to get some uh, some little business cards made up that kind of had like statistics about veteran suicide rates and everything. And I was going to hand them out every time somebody said, you know, oh, thank you for your service. But uh, thankfully, I live in a place that, that doesn't really even get talked about. So I haven't actually worked up the courage to start handing these cards out. But uh, I mean, it, that's the kind that's the level that it does bother me that uh, we kind of get used as pawns when they really don't care anything about us. Yeah, that that's how it's always appeared to me as just an outside observer. And it always bothers me whenever anyone is sort of making a pretense of speaking on behalf of an entire group of people, whether it's a particular racial group or a particular ethnic group, or in this case, you know, a, a basically an, op- an occupation group, right? People who've been in the military. And mm-hmm. it, it always bothers me, especially when it's a large, diverse group of potentially millions of people. It's like, have, have you gone and asked them all, you know, um, what they think about what it is you're saying uh, using them as a prop, you know, using them as, as sort of window dressing for for your own ideology. I mean, it seems just another kind of form of dehumanization. I definitely see it as dehumanization. And uh, as a quick little sidetrack, the whole Dakota Access Pipeline that happened last year or the year before that, 
I, I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation, so it definitely comes up to uh, be something that's pretty be a pretty large impact with going over native sovereign rights and uh, protection of treaties, which I'm sure everybody knows that the, gov- the U.S. government's not very good at uh, following treaties. I mean, we could start with Fort Laramie, but right. if I don't think many people notice, but almost immediately once that little protest started, the police were out there not with, you know, just like their normal cars and everything trying to control what could turn out to be a violent protest. But I mean, they were there with military vehicles, full body armor, uh, M16s, just fire, fire extinguisher sized uh, pepper spray. And you can watch these videos and I mean, they're, they're spraying uh, the peaceful protesters out there with cold water in December. It, seems odd to me that you know we want to talk about the freedoms that we are accorded with our constitution and such but then we have you know human beings sprayed with water during the middle of winter by people dressed up like soldiers and nobody really has a problem with that or if they did have a problem with it they've forgotten about it because the news is just that little carousel of stop paying attention to this kind of action Hmm, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing to bring up, and it is very, I think, significant and revealing how that that whole story kind of popped up and then went away. <laughs> and and, and of course, it uh, happened under it happened under the benevolent and progressive Obama. Yeah, I, I try I try to stay about from the uh, you know the the big scale of politics. I, I'll just sit in my little hole and hate the things that I want to hate because I don't have enough energy to hate them all. Right. Um, but one of the biggest things, you know, the, the police were essentially acting as the corporate military because they, they were on tribal protected land telling the natives and the protesters to leave their own land as they're standing on top of uh, a burial mound, which again, I mean, there's just no – you're not even going to show respect for a burial mound. And I mean, this is supposed to be the enforcement of the our protection and laws. Yeah, yeah. Well, it blows holes in the myth that the U.S. government is just an unbiased uh, protector and enforcer of property rights, because that never seems to be the case when it comes to the property rights of groups that are you know, not plugged into the high level of power, right? So, you know, the the property rights of the railroad companies back in the day or the oil mm-hmm. companies now, those property rights always supersede the property rights of uh, the natives or, you know, anybody else that's kind of in the way of the master plan. But, um, all right, circling circling back around to your deployment. So when we last left off in our conversations – I think we were still basically relatively early into your first deployment in Iraq, you know, and you went over a lot of the situation of what was happening, what was going on in Mosul, and and went over some of the things you were facing as far as the threats, the different types of explosives, and um, the different countermeasures you were trying, you know, not just you individually, but but all the soldiers in the area were, were trying to use to deal with these things. So... Let's jump back into the story with kind of 
what you're dealing with um, and, and get some more of your experiences and, and that sort of thing. Okay. I arrived in Mosul just slightly before Halloween. And at the time, I was, a, uh, I was in the position of being a radio operator. I was still a cavalry scout, which is, again, it's kind of like, for the easiest terms, essentially infantry uh, during these deployments. But um, during the time that I was working on the radios, which was for about the first three months of the deployment, we were averaging a lot of attacks uh, in the city. In December... There was about 15 to 18 tax attacks a day. And uh, it was about this time that we had one of our first losses in the unit, which was one of our NCOs being struck with an RPG in the gunner's hatch, which killed him. And that was kind of like the wake-up call, I think, for everybody. Um, it got to the point that once I heard that, I essentially walked over to the top enlisted guy in my battalion and told him that I wanted to go into an actual combat unit and stop just sitting on the radios because I had been doing that for quite a while. So I started actually doing combat operations in about January. So, Well, l- um, let me ask you a, a couple things. Um, one is, I can't remember if you mentioned this uh, last time or not, what kinds of vehicles were you guys uh, patrolling around in? Were you in Bradley's or what? When we first arrived at the unit, or when we first arrived in Mosul, we replaced a striker battalion. So the strikers are the eight-wheeled um, personnel carriers, which are, from what I understand, they're very good vehicles, but I never had any experience with them. But... uh we came in as a heavy armored brigade. So our brigade commander said, you know, let's roll out all the tanks. Let's show them who's boss. We, you know, we're the new guys in town. We're not, we're not fucking around. We're going to, we're going to roll over tanks and shit with you. And we did that for probably the first month. And then the word came down that, oh, we think we're scaring the population too much. So now let's, uh, let's just use Humvees, which was, our primary vehicle, uh, we didn't have any of the newer armored vehicles that came out, like the MRAPs and the ones that were actually designed to survive IED blast. But we did have the upgraded version of the Humvees. Now, I say upgraded because the original Humvee is the same Humvee that, you know, saw in Desert Storm. It's got the canvas door. And uh, uh, slightly before we arrived... We had the Humvees that were basically being thrown with any piece of metal that could be found to try to uh, make armor. We had mechanics welding everything that they could think of, and uh, most of these vehicles were not actually suited for the armor that they had because you uh, don't expect to be adding thousands of pounds of steel or sandbags in a Humvee. And, of course, that weighs it down. It's tearing up the transmission, the shocks, the tires, the engine, everything. So they came out with a new version of the Humvee, which I think was called the 1159. And it it had the beefier suspension. It had an upgraded engine. And it was more designed to be an armored vehicle, but it was still a – 
I mean, it's still a vehicle that's was never designed for actual combat. So it was it was more designed just for for basic transport, not for actually going out and getting into heavy stuff. Yeah, the the Humvee replaced the old uh, Jeeps and the they had like SUVs and old Chevy trucks that they used to have for logistic vehicles, and it got replaced with the Humvee. And I mean, you you can put an anti tank missile launcher on top of a Humvee, but that doesn't mean it's a good combat vehicle. This asymmetrical warfare that we found ourselves in really showed the the chink in the armor of us relying heavily on these advanced, sophisticated vehicles like the Bradley and the Abrams and the Apache. But then when we get into urban operations, we quickly fell short. They had an armored vehicle in the Army's inventory that would have worked really well. It was the 1117 Guardian. And essentially, it's like a really small striker that only has four wheels. But I mean, this vehicle had a V-shaped hole, which deflects blast away. Um, it was pretty well armored, pretty zippy, but, uh, the army didn't want to spend the money on those when they could spend it on the Humvees, which were, uh, far less expensive. So the, the NCO you mentioned who was killed, I'm guessing then he was in a Humvee when that happened. Yeah, he was in a Humvee. Um, I'm not going to say his name just for, uh, you know, out of respect for, The family, but yeah, he was in the uh, the gunner's hatch, and from what I've gathered about the situation, uh, was somebody from an elevated position shot an RPG into the hatch, and uh, I mean that he never stood a chance. So that was that was our first big wake up uh, call. Now, was this someone that you knew pretty well personally? No, I, I didn't know him at all. Oh, okay. All right. But then, as you were saying before, then you specifically asked to be put into a combat unit. So how'd that go? Um, It went poorly, kind of, because being in a headquarters unit as a combat soldier, I let myself get uh, put into a bad position, but it's because nobody told me, hey, don't answer questions. Because when I originally showed up to my unit back in Texas, the sergeant major, the one who I told later that I wanted to go, asked me if I knew how to use computers. And of course, I'm like 18 growing up during my generation. Yeah, I know how to use computers. It's like, congratulations, you're now working the radios. So I never got to do all of the you know combat training for months and months that everybody else did. I just kind of threw myself into the into the fire, but I was given a pretty good starting opportunity because at the time was when we were starting to do the actual counterinsurgency operations, which started coming out at, in 2007. So what we did is we had this uh, an academy that we uh, would train new Iraqi recruits to be uh, soldiers. So essentially, we were acting as drill sergeants with uh, a group of people that really, really were unmotivated and very difficult for us to understand as you know U.S. soldiers because we say to do something and you do it. Whereas the uh, the population in the area was more of the concept of imshallah, which in Arabic means a. Uh, God wills it, or if God wills it, essentially they don't feel they have any control 
over the outcome of their destiny because it's all preordained. So they really like. I guess you could consider it lazy or apathetic, but I mean, it's a different culture altogether. So I don't think it's fair to say they're lazy from our perspective, but, uh, just more sort of like they're more fatalistic and maybe in a way because of that more passive. Yes. And it it definitely shows in their fighting strategy. They rarely ever aim. It's, you know, we call it the spray and pray method, right? where you just you just start shooting randomly. So we would take about 20 to 30 recruits at a time and we would go through with, you know, basic soldiering techniques, basic patrolling techniques, how to search people for weapons, how to search vehicles for explosives, um movements under contact and everything. And that was one of my first real encounters with not being provided the things that we were supposed to be provided with to win the war. I was a private at the time and being a private who's an instructor, I didn't have an interpreter. So I'm kind of sitting there. They're like, here's your 10 guys to train. And I have no way to communicate with these people at all. Like I can do hand and arm signals and you can kind of get your message across. But it got to the point that after hours, I would go to my interpreter or our battalion or sorry, our company's interpreter. And I would ask, you know, hey, can you teach me these words so that I can at least, you know, give a better direction for these uh, for the recruits? And then I ended up picking up some Arabic. So that helped me train. But we still we, we were so woefully unprepared for the situation because we were not instructed on being instructors. Wow. So, yeah, not not trained to be trainers in general, and then also kind of not specifically trained in, like, some basic Arabic, at least words that might be helpful, and just like, no, here's these people who you've got no experience being a trainer, you don't know anything about their language or culture, Go train mm-hmm. them. I mean, it's just only only a big a big uh, government bureaucratic organization could come up with that and think like, oh yeah, this will work. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It, it was it was pretty astounding. I didn't really think about it at the time just because it was the job that I was told to do. But um, looking back on it now, uh, I'm I'm surprised that we had the successes that we did. So I'm, we we trained the Iraqis and uh, I think I trained about 90. And then before I left the academy, we trained one group of Iraqi special forces so we actually had the spe- the U.S. Special Forces come and they kind of took over the training. Uh, but one one of the little funny incidents that uh, really sticks out of my head was we were standing around for lunch and we were in this little uh, makeshift urban uh, urban combat area where we had 
walls and sandbags set up to to mimic going through rooms and houses. And the one of the special forces guys like got a new box and he opened it and it was like this uh, paintball gun. And they were stoked out of their minds, like like hyenas freaking finding their their first little meal. And the special forces dude looks at me, he throws the gun at me and he's like, shoot me with it. And I'm just there like, uh, <laughs> I'm not shooting a special forces dude because I don't want to be dead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I got, oh, I didn't say that, but I just kind of froze there. And then they realized that, uh, I was frozen. So they were kind enough to take it away and do it, them, shoot themselves with it. But, uh, that mm. was one of those situations that you just don't expect to happen. It's a nice breakup from the monotony. So the the strategy that we had was we would train like 15 to 20 at a time, and then we would go take them out on patrols once we quote-unquote graduated them. This didn't always work out because there was one class. The entire class never showed up. They were supposed to go to their, uh, their Iraqi bases, get their weapons, get their clothes, get their vehicles, and meet us at this uh, rendezvous point. And they just never did. Like, every single one of them was gone. And we found out later that we were ending up training a lot of our insurgents because there was no vetting or screening process whatsoever. It's whoever showed up that said they wanted to be a soldier. They got trained in being a soldier. <laughs> so it, it could be somebody who is specifically showing up just so that they can get some additional training, possibly get access to some much better hardware than they had. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, kind of, you know, do a little recon on, on you guys. Right. And, you know, get a better understanding of how you guys operate mm -hmm. and then go right back to, <laughs> right back to, um, being some of the people who are trying to attack you. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. Right. I mean, you know, we always hear that, like some of the guys we trained as the Mujahideen in the eighties, then turned into Al Qaeda and some of the people we helped out during the, this, this particular Iraq war ended up being down the road, ISIS or, you know, some other sort of thing. Oh, that that's, that reminds me of a story. The Iraqi Sergeant major that was at the Academy and he was, the, he was the top guy for their enlisted he was he was in the army, the Iraqi army, during the first Gulf War. So he fought against us. This guy got shot in the head, somehow survived, somehow stayed in the military. And over a decade later, we're training him to fight yet another group of quote-unquote bad guys. That was one of those uh, – Kind of surreal things. You you typically figure if somebody gets shot in their head and they're still alive, that they're not going to continue doing whatever it is that got them shot in the head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like the classic, the surfer that gets, you know, his leg bit off by a great white shark. And as soon as he's able to, not only is he back surfing, he's surfing in the exact same spot. <laughs> um, so while you were involved in this training, you're also still periodically going out on patrols because that's in a way kind of part of the part of the training process. 
were you getting into any any serious situations while you were doing those those patrols with the guys you were training did 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 attacks happen frequently while you were doing that or or was it generally kind of low key how did it how did it play out um we had attacks but i i was the one person that i would never actually be in a patrol that had a contact or engagement until pretty much the end of my deployment. Okay, so this is still during that period that you that you mentioned last time we spoke where you were kind of freaking out a little bit psychologically because of this, right? Where you were having all kinds of uh all kinds of reactions to the fact that it seemed like everybody else was having having attacks and engagements and whatever and then it would be always just kind of quiet for you. It, that's that is the way that it was, and it led to a lot of chronic thinking that I believe is associated with a lot of my current problems. Because essentially, I mean, every minute of the day that you're outside, you're like, "Well, I might die now. Well, I might die now. That cat might be an IED. Uh, this vehicle might be an IED." And after a while, that gets really boring, and you kind of start looking in and it got to the point that I was wishing that things were either uh, going to explode or shoot at me because I was so bored and so complacent that even possible death was more exciting than doing another routine patrol where nothing happens when you have this high expectation. Mm. And I mean, that, that pretty much just led to a chronic suicidal thought process because Something has to happen. Either you're going to shoot someone or someone's going to shoot you. You're in a war zone. This is what you expect. Um, and with chronically not having anything happening, uh, I typically had more of the uh, the really negative bad thoughts going through. But I still did go out on patrols. Uh, I know I went on over 100. I forget the number. Um, but trying to come back to a story there was one in particular in the early days that uh sticks out of my mind we had to go rebuild one of the prisons that our one of our platoons was at because there had been a big breakout prior to this so we were going to escort the engineers to go out to the prison and repair the damages. Now, this was a mission that we were going to do at night because we had to take all the engineering vehicles out there, so their backhoes, their dump trucks and everything. And uh, the only route that we could take was down the most dangerous route, like the main thoroughfare. So we were going to do it at night during the curfews to try to reduce the likelihood of us getting attacked. So once we actually took off, the engineer's company's name was Nasty Company. So the first thing that I hear pretty much once we get outside the gate is the call sign Nasty Dump saying that their vehicle is overheating and they need to reduce the speed down to about 10 miles an hour. Well, of course, nasty, nasty dump referring to their dump truck, which I, I just thought was, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine, uh, especially, man, a bunch of 18-year-old guys, you know, must have been hilarious. Oh, yeah. 
So we we slow our speed down to 10 miles an hour to begin with. And then we a little bit later, we take a turn. And in the never ending uh, comedy circus, somebody forgot to chain down one of the bucket implements for the tractors. So it fell off the flatbed. So we had to stop. They had to take down uh, whatever tractor actually held the implement, take it off the uh, truck, remove its implement, pick up the dropped piece. And so, again, it's another 40 minutes of just sitting there in this big, giant, loud convoy that everyone knows is there while we you know, pick up stuff that is dropping off. And I don't see how they can take us seriously when they <laughs> see like stuff falling off of our trucks. <laughs> And and where you were, was it still like right in the city and surrounded by, by buildings on all sides? Or were you a little bit more in an open area? Do you we remember? We were a little more in a suburban area. I mean, we weren't surrounded by high-rise, high-rises or anything. But mm. no, we were fully surrounded by, you know, apartment buildings and single-family dwellings and uh, like that. Yeah. So, I mean, you must have felt pretty much like potential sitting ducks. Oh, yeah. Pretty much all of us were assuming that we were going to be attacked on that one because it's such a large convoy and uh, we weren't moving for so long. Thankfully, though, we uh, we made it there and it didn't uh, didn't result in anyone being shot. My troop commander, when I when we got moved to Talifar, which was to the west of Mosul, he was one of these Captain America, I want to get every medal that there is without actually doing anything uh, kind of commander. So in his opinion, the very birthplace of terrorism was in a town called Sheikh Ibrahim. Uh, it is just this tiny little hamlet on the side of a hill, but we raided it three different times. Uh, the first time we had broken off into two different sets of uh, vehicles. And my platoon was charged with being a quick reaction force if they needed uh, some backup. So the operation went off terribly from the very beginning. We set up to leave at 3 a.m. to be there by 7, except somebody forgot that the sun rises before we actually got there. So it was just kind of a huge pile of dirt being thrown into the air as we're driving through the really deep sand. So they knew we were coming before we even got there. And when they saw us coming, they had people that were running up over the hill. So we were called in and my Humvee specifically was told to go follow them. Now, I'm not sure how many people do enjoy that crazy kind of rock climbing, but it's not something that's fun when you're in a vehicle that's really top heavy and seven feet wide going down a five foot path. I really thought that I was going to fall off and die off that hill because it was so absurd that I was driving a vehicle clearly not meant for it, doing a task very unsuccessfully. So this sounds almost like you're like you're driving up a goat path or something like this is what I'm picturing in my mind, like a goat path up a little 
up a little desert uh, mountain or something. Yeah, um, I forget how this this hill was probably a good four four hundred feet. So I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, mountain, but it, it was pretty good sized. Um, yeah, well, to a Florida man like me, that's a mountain. Yeah, that's true. I can understand <laughs> that. Um, yeah, we were basically going up a goat path, and it was really sad. And I think it just makes us look really foolish because we're driving an armored vehicle up a hill trying to catch people that are running and had already gotten off the other side of the hill by the time I actually got up there and we're willing to sacrifice the lives and the vehicles that are associated with said rollover uh, to catch people that we don't even know if they truly are the, uh, the bad guys. So then the second time that we, uh, we went out to Sheik Ibrahim Again, we were in the role of uh, the quick reaction force, but the other platoon decided to take two uh, UH-60s out there. Well, yet again, we managed to start late, be seen, and have absolutely nothing happen. Thankfully, they didn't try to ask me to drive up a hill, so that was a better one. When we were returning, as we're driving through the, uh, the desert path, we see just a random explosion happen. I mean, middle of the desert, nothing's around us, no houses, no nothing, which is something that we thought that was rather weird. But it's on the path, so we figured it might have been an old uh, landmine or something. So we drive down into this wadi, which is just a, uh, a dry riverbed, and we come up, and as we come up, one Literally one second, I can see just fine. The next second, there's just nothing but choking sand. I can't see anything. All that I do know is that I'm supposed to get out of the area that we were just blown up in. So I hit the accelerator. And the next thing I know, the NCO next to me uh, is screaming at me. Like, what are you doing? Uh, I I know I said... Uh, you know, I'm trying to get us out of the kill zone, but apparently I had a concussion, which I did not know about for several years uh, because nobody decided to uh, mention it. But uh, our gunner ended up getting a bunch of dirt thrown up in his face. And for the longest time, we couldn't figure out what attack, what they used to attack us. But apparently it was one of those newer, fancier uh directional charges that had it actually worked properly, it would have taken out uh, my Humvee. Uh, but thankfully, whoever made it didn't do a very good job. And we had we had overhead support from two Kiowa helicopters. And they said at one point that they see a truck driving away. And we... Remind them that that's probably the guys who blew us up. And somehow, even being in a helicopter, they call back about five minutes later saying, uh, we can't find him and we're out of gas, so we're leaving. <laughs> so that was our uh, that was our support. So your vehicle, your vehicle was still functional, though, after the explosion. Yeah, it was still functional. Uh it shattered my TC's window or my truck commander's window, which is just the right front seat. That's the guy who's in charge of that Humvee. 
and uh, it like knocked off all of our lights and everything. It was directionally charged up, and I'm assuming the uh, instead of a buckshot, it was more just kind of like an actual explosion. Because had it been formed properly, based upon its angle, because it wasn't a wide blast, it was a very directed charge, but it wasn't done properly. So I'm guessing that must have, you know, literally and figuratively shaken you pretty badly because up till now, I mean, you really hadn't had something like that happen right, right to you. So, yeah, I never asked about it, honestly, like it happened. And when we got back, we were told very specifically, do not say anything about getting uh, a concussion or saying that you feel sick, your ears are ringing or anything. So I, <laughs> they're, they're, they're telling you specific symptoms to not report. That's, that's pretty disturbing. That's one of the, uh, I mean, that right there is one of the biggest reasons why we have the health problems that we do in the combat or veteran community, because we're pretty much specifically told, don't say anything because you're going to fuck everyone else. Never mind the fact that, you have the rest of your life to live with still. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the NFL only you guys aren't even getting paid millions of dollars to deal with this. Yeah, no, uh, unfortunately we're not getting paid. We went out to some patrol to Syria, but not Syria because we weren't allowed to say we were in Syria, but, uh, we went out to some school, came back and we were heading back to our base when we were told that we needed to go to this particular village. I don't remember the name, uh, and secure it and wait for reinforcements because the Navy SEALs were there and they said that they had found one of the, the big people off of the deck of cards. So our four Humvees were spread out around a village that was several square miles so, again, absolutely absurd request to be made. But we did it, and we we were there maybe three, four hours, and the Navy SEALs were like, oh, we don't know where he went. He must have ran away. So they're like, okay, you guys can go. So we start driving off, and because we had spent so much time out there, uh, they had to set up a refuel point for us so that we could uh, make it back to the base. So they had fuel tankers out there, and as we were getting refueled, the our squadron commander, who was another really special kind of human being, told us that we need to return to the city, to the town, resecure it, and one of the other co- one of the other companies will do a new search through the village. So we did, and unsurprisingly, we didn't find anything you can see the impact to his ego that happened. And I mean, it's an ego trip to begin with trying to come behind uh, someone who is far, far superior than the equipment and the training that we had. They lose the person and he thinks somehow that we're going to do a better job. So, what what was the what was the takeaway from this? I mean, other other than your commanding officer had had these unrealistic delusions, like like how did you 
see this at the time? Was this just sort of fitting into your experience so far, as far as these kinds of kinds of things? You know, people in charge not always making rational calls and things not making sense, or or was this kind of like a new new sort of a of a thing to you? It was it was a newer kind of thing because. I don't know. I guess I was one of the good soldiers that I never really questioned anything because I'm told to do it. I don't really have much of a choice. And I ne- I didn't want to question the the ideas that the officers came up with because my thought was, well, I'm just a private, so I have no idea what is going on up there, which is I, what I feel the way that you have to be. But seeing that happen really kind of brought it into reality that – he was a moron and <laughs> and that yeah. he had this he had this ego problem and a few weeks later he would be coming back from a patrol and he somehow forgets how his M16 works so um the process of clearing an M16 is you drop the magazine, you pull the charging handle to the rear. If there's a round in it, it flies out. If not, you check it, make sure that there isn't a round. You let the handle go, and then you put it on safe. He just continued doing the uh, pulling the charging pu- pulling the charging handle back without ever dropping his magazine. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one more step is you're supposed to pull the trigger uh, and then put it on safe. So that's why you want to make sure that there's not actually a bullet in there. Right. But uh, so he pulled the charging handle, bullet fell out. He looked at it very confused from the uh, story that we heard from his security detail. Pulled the charging handle again, another round flies out. Pulls it a third time, round flies out. Round flies out, and he pulls the trigger. Oh. And he shoots a hole through the bottom of his Humvee. Now, the defense that I tried to give him was he, maybe he wanted a drain hole <laughs> in the floor of the Humvee. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm just a dumb civilian, but even I know how, a, <laughs> how a, a, you know, an AR-15, M-16 style rifle works. And I mean, that's the kind of thing that would get you in big trouble at my shooting range for doing. Uh, yeah. Um he he got in he got in trouble. He was given a letter of reprimand, and we had our battle space taken away, which is why we were separated off to the winds. And usually, a letter of reprimand is like the end of your career. But since we were so needy, he ended up getting promoted again to uh, full colonel, and then he got to take a uh, a whole brigade worth of people to put in. Uh, terrible decisions. However, there is a golden lining to it. When I was at the gym, I was on a treadmill and there was, uh, it was facing more treadmills. And I saw that he was running on the treadmill on the other side of the gym and he started to drift. And one of his feet ended up hitting the uh, stationary portion of the treadmill and he fell down and he was thrown off the treadmill quite violently <laughs> Wow. Which I guess which I guess is a little bit of uh joy for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, makes me wonder what's what's wrong with this guy? I mean, how does he He's, have like legit mental mental dysfunctions? <laughs> this is a lot of the officers that are in the military. 
and a lot of the uh, pretty much everybody. And, and that's one of the things I learned early. I think I said one of one of the podcasts before that when I joined the army, I thought it was going to be like a special different group of people. And I realized it's all just the same assholes that are on the outside. Hmm. They uh, they just have weapons now. Yeah. Although, you know, I could I could see how for a while you you wouldn't kind of grasp this because, you know, not only are you still pretty new at this, but I mean, what are you, 18, 19 years old when all this is happening? I mean. Yeah, um, I think I turned 19 like the two weeks before I actually deployed. I turned 18 in basic training. Okay. Yeah. So, you know. Nobody really knows much of anything or understands the world a whole hell of a lot at nineteen. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I I didn't know I didn't know shit about shit when I was nineteen. I mean, and I think I'm relatively smart, but you know, when you're nineteen, you just don't understand stuff. So, you know, I I think I think that there's there's multiple reasons why they like to recruit guys as young as as they do. You know. And, and I think only part of it's physical, you know, that usually when you're 18, 19, you're in some of the best physical shape of your life, you know, for most people. And I think part of it's also that even though, you know, physically you're, you're hardy and whatever, that you don't really know much about the world and people and whatever. And so it's easy to kind of, you know, take advantage of that. I think there's a reason they don't want to recruit 25 and 30 year olds. Like even if there was no difference in physical, in, in physical health and, and, you know, being in shape and all that, you know, cause 25, 30 year old would be probably a bit more sophisticated in in kind of not being manipulated around. And I don't, th- I don't mean this in any way as an insult against you. Cause when I was, like I said, when I was 19, I was a dumbass too, but I, you know, I, I, I always get the impression that they're kind of, to on some level taking advantage of people. That's absolutely true. We had the recruiters come into our classes like economics and tell us about how great the retirement was, how great the pay is, how great all the benefits are. And then so you sign up and pretty quickly you realize that things are a little off, but you expect that to be. And you do want people to think as little as possible because if you are trying to build a more efficient army, you would want to recruit those 23 through 30 year olds because you can think better. Your really advanced level of thinking doesn't really even start until you're 25, uh, being able to understand certain consequences and everything. And at 17, 18 years old, I didn't know shit about shit either. I never knew politics. I never knew history or anything like that. I just, this is what I'm doing. And I guess whatever you tell me is what I do. And it wasn't until about 25 that I started thinking really logically about what the military was. And uh, by that point, I had I had been injured for several years. I, I got injured my first deployment. But uh, I mean, it, it would take another six, seven years before anyone actually took it seriously. Yeah, plus for for young men in particular, I mean, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you are jacked to the gills on testosterone, you know? I mean, oh yes. Your your body's just like pumping out testosterone like a bull shark and, you know, that's not necessarily just a uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing on its own, but when you combine 
what what you were just referring to, you know, that that the the average person's brain isn't fully wired up right until about 25. Um, when you combine that with sky high levels of testosterone that most young men have, it's like uh, it, it's a it's a recipe for for getting people to do really risky things without thinking twice. As long as they get you early and before you have a family as well, because that's another big thing that the the military would prefer that you don't have, which reminds me, do you remember the movie, uh, The Major Pain? Yeah. Talking about how if the military wanted him to have a wife that they would have issued him one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but yep, that sounds familiar. When, when you look at having... Uh, the younger soldiers, you do have the problem of, you know, pumping out the testosterone. But then when you put that child, which I mean, I was a child when I went to war, you put that child into a combat zone. Now they are being pumped with your fight or flight chemicals. And you just have this nonstop over and over having fight or flight. And it just fries your brain with all of these uh, hormones that you're not supposed to be put under day after day. And, you know, my first deployment was 15 months. We thought it was going to be 12, but they extended it. And once you came back, we already had our orders for our next deployment. So there's never a point where you come down because the moment you come back, you already know that you're going again. So you never are able to decouple. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things, you know, with the PTSD that a lot of soldiers get and even more soldiers either don't acknowledge it or refuse to acknowledge it, but you're just flooded with chemicals and hormones and you're expected to do these dangerous tasks. And, me looking at it now, had I never been in the military, there's no way that I would have joined the military knowing what I know now. Yeah. I mean, I just think about times in my life where I've been just, you know, kind of stressed about about mundane mundane little things. Like I've got a got a ton of unusual crap happening at work and, you know, stuff is breaking at home and like even just when that's happening for a while. Like I can feel myself getting thrown off the rail and that's not even in anywhere in the same ballpark at all as life or death situations. So, I mean, I, I, I can only imagine how, how much it just messes with uh, your head, your chemistry, everything like that. Um, well, what did you want to get to, uh, next? We had this one soldier who had been hit with several IEDs and he very clearly should have been sent home, but the unit was more concerned with having bodies. Um, well, his last IED strike made it to the point that he couldn't speak anymore. So they evacuated him to Germany and then back to Walter Reed. My unit didn't want to pay for his wife to be flown to Walter Reed. So with the knowledge that her husband might be dead or permanently paralyzed, she throws her kids into the car and starts to drive from Texas to, I forget what state uh, Walter Reed is in, but she 
gets into an accident and all three of their children get killed. And this was because of inadequacies with the unit. And yeah, that was a, that was a pretty hard one. And I mean, that, that really shows the, the scope of how little the soldier actually is to the military. Obviously it's an extreme case. However, it's an, it is a case nonetheless. And it just kind of, it just kind of shows you the way things are in the military. And I'm assuming it's the things that most people don't know. Well, um, that story was that, was that someone that you knew well that that happened to, or just someone you kind of vaguely knew? It was somebody in my uh, platoon, but I didn't know him very well. I was kind of a loner. I didn't really fit into any of the cliques because I came into the unit uh, very late. Mm. So I just never formed a, a bond with anybody. But I was supposed to be on that patrol. And there's another one of those things that where I constantly feel like I'm not getting the the action that I was supposed to get with going to war. And I was in the driver's seat. I was ready to go. We were all lined up. And for some reason, my Humvee had six people assigned to it, even though there's only five seats. There were other seats that were open in the platoon, but I was sent off and sent back to my room because he said, we're going to have this other soldier drive the Humvee. And that was the patrol that he got blown up on. So once again, it's like you've had good luck, which makes you think that you're going to be due for some really bad luck. Now, what was the, what was the next thing you can remember as far as like uh, a significant personal experience? In my platoon, we lost three people. And if my memory serves correctly, they were the only three losses from my battalion during that deployment. One of them I knew quite well because he was one of the people that kind of pointed out that I might have PTSD and he tried to kind of help coach me. But of course I wasn't receptive because there's no way I can have PTSD because I haven't done anything. And then two other uh, soldiers who I knew of, but I was not, again, I wasn't in the clique with them. So we were doing a logistics patrol and we were going to resupply the prison that they were uh, assigned to. We were coming down the main road and there is a bridge that we have to cross. The One of the lanes of traffic was blown up. So there was only one lane of traffic to go across the bridge and kind of as a precaution – we had to search around the bridge, make sure that there were no new new IEDs uh, placed there, and then we can drive across. Now, we're on the eastbound lane, and we need to be in the westbound lane to get to the prison. So we cross over in the dirt median on the other side of the bridge, and we take the road down. And we we arrive at the prison. We drop off our supplies. I saw all three of the soldiers that day and we finished our resupply and we went back home about 1 a.m the following morning they went out on their security patrol 
and they crossed over at the same spot that I did. And this time there was an IED there and it blew up the Humvee, uh, killing all three of them. And it took a while for that one to hit me. It was definitely just one of those, uh, I know I was angry at myself because I wasn't upset about it and I couldn't figure out why until, you know, you take a look back and you realize with everything going on, it's pretty hard to actually have, uh, an emotional response because that's not the kind of response that they want from a soldier. And we were pulled out of our tents probably about 2 AM afterwards. And, uh, my, my joke had been that they were going to tell us that we're going to war with Syria and that now we're, re- <laughs> we're relocating to Syria because they're mad that we went to their schoolhouse. And, you know, they... You were just at about ahead. a dozen years early. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so we were pulled out 2 a.m. and we were told, hey, uh, three guys just got killed. And this was September... So, I mean, this was towards, this was our 12th or 13th month there. And we just kind of fell into the idea that just nothing was going to happen. It was just going to be an insignificant deployment because Baghdad was where all the action was at this point. So, did anything else major happen to you or to anyone close to you for the remainder of what was left of that deployment? Right before we redeployed, kind of everything that happened during this deployment uh, culminated in a really horrible incident. Now, our squadron commander had lost the battle space, so the unit was broken up even more. Uh, We were down to maybe a couple hundred soldiers in the entirety of Mosul. And the thinning of the soldiers led to pretty much a free-for-all for what the insurgents were actually doing. So on Halloween in 2007, our sister battalion, 27 Cav, had one of their Bradleys completely destroyed by an IED that was buried in the middle of the street. The explosion was so powerful that it blew the turret off of the hum- or the, uh, the Bradley by several hundred feet. And this killed the, uh, the gunner and the commander, which happened to be uh, one of the company commanders. And this would bring 2-7's loss to 28 soldiers. So I believe we lost three. And then our sister battalion that was still in Mosul uh, lost 28. So again, it kind of shows just the absurdity of where we were because we were thrown out to the wind because our commander was an idiot. And that led to the severely depleted presence because we were the ones that were working with the Iraqi soldiers, but we were pulled off of that mission and even more of the capability for patrolling and providing security was removed It ended up that several uh, acetylene-sized tanks had been blown up all – or I'm sorry, had been buried in the road, and they were able to cover it up, and nobody even knew. So things are are not going well. 
And then how do how do things look when you redeploy? Uh, when we redeploy, pretty much immediately we had our first uh, casualty. Uh, we had a soldier who was drinking, and he was driving his motorcycle down the one of the main main roads in El Paso, and he t-boned a minivan uh that was crossing the intersection and then uh he was going a hundred and twenty miles an hour i think they said so yeah that that was just another one of those uh losses that we had because you have these young soldiers hopped up on testosterone and all the other chemicals that come with it and then they're taken out of there yeah, it always looks to me like a lot of a lot of veterans end up as kind of adrenaline junkies. Oh yeah, uh, and I mean that's why so many are do things to to seek to fulfill that need, whether it be drinking and driving, whether it be whether it be theft, whether it be abuse of their family members. Uh, one of our higher ranking NCOs. Uh, this was back when I was deployed. I was coming out of my the company office, and I heard my company commander just screaming at somebody. So I made the mistake of looking over and seeing that company commander's yelling at one of the higher-ranking NCOs. And apparently, uh, he was being sent back to the States by uh, military police because he had been molesting his daughter – Oh, and yeah, so wow. I mean, again, this this obviously isn't everybody, but there are a lot of stories like this that I've known and gone through. And again, it's I don't think it's one of those things that most people know about. Yeah. So so what are, what's actually going on when you're back in El Paso? Uh, what are you just sort of? Are, are you doing any additional training or anything? Uh, what What are you doing? When we return, we have to go through a mandatory three or five day, they call it a reintegration process, where they basically tell you, don't beat your kids, don't beat your wife, don't drink and drive. You, you've been gone for a year, so your family's going to be different. And then that's it. They Then they usually send you on 30 days of leave. And once you return, you just go back to preparing for the next deployment. Mm-hmm. Did you feel weird when you got back? Um, were you married yet at this time? I don't remember. No, no, I was still single. Uh, okay. Did it, did the, it just the, feel strange walking around in, in the regular world in the U S at this point? It's really weird because I mean, you wore the same outfit every single day. You went to the same places and then you kind of have all this freedom. Uh, I think it's very akin to, you know, somebody coming out of prison after serving a sentence and you go from having absolutely no freedom to essentially all the freedoms uh, and you're not carrying a gun around all the time, which is a really hard thing to uh, to readjust to. It leads to a lot of freaking out moments uh, because you're always supposed to have your gun on you if you don't uh, usually get in a little bit of trouble. Looking back on it from now, um, do you feel that you were already suffering from PTSD? Oh, most certainly. Looking back at it now, I was I I got PTSD pretty early. 
And one of the things that's really hard is, again, everybody kind of has the impression that you have to have all of these uh, incidents happen to you. And that's why most of us don't want to accept that we have PTSD. And I mean, it wouldn't be until probably about six months before I was actually discharged from the military until I finally said, oh, shit, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I do have a problem. Were you already, uh, after the first deployment, were you already suffering from, from things like panic attacks when you were out out and about and, you know, uh, uh, an ugly abandoned car was parked somewhere or that sort? Like, were you al- already dealing with those sorts of things? Yeah, it's it's a lot of us talked about, you know, not being able to go under bridges without being freaked out or, you know, seeing trash on the road. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, as a kid, you you like to step on rocks or leaves or anything like that. But after you spend uh, time where those things might be explosives, it's uh, it's really hard to ever trust stepping near those things, even to this day. I mean, it's been like 12 years since I first went over there. I still have problems with trash. I still have problems with holes in the ground. I mean, for a lot of us, it's something that doesn't go away. Or it takes a long time to kind of work it out. Okay, and you still, uh, you had what, one one additional deployment to Iraq after that first one? Yeah. Uh, and the, one and then deployment. also one to Afghanistan after that? Yes. So already you're getting a bit messed up mm-hmm. um, from your experiences, and it's still not even close to being over. So. How how were things going into your second deployment to Iraq? Uh, things going into my second deployment, I had I married my wife in November, and then I graduated because I went to reclass because I decided I didn't want to be in the infantry anymore, and I wanted to get a job that actually had a technical skill. So I went to be a uh, a UH sixty mechanic, and again I made the mistake of answering the question. And this time, instead of do I know how to use a computer, it's do I know how to shoot a machine gun, which I said yes. And then they're like, ah, perfect. You can go and be a crew chief, which is not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be a mechanic first. Uh, So there's a lot of learning involved with uh, kind of going into that. So it masks a lot of the problems. And we got to we I we arrived at our duty station in January and then by March I was deploying. So I had spent a whole two months maybe with my family and then we deployed. So, I mean, right off the bat, there's just no, there's no respect for any of the actual family in the military. And that was at a point where I was really getting impacted by the stresses of another deployment and really being in far more danger than I ever was as an infant was in the infantry, which was really weird to deal with. So what, what was your job as the crew chief? Like what, what were you, what were you supposed uh, to be essentially, doing? essentially, uh, we're the door gunners. Okay. So we man the machine gun, and then uh, our secondary duty is pretty much everything from our window back to the end of the tail. 
So if we're landing, we're, the, we're out there helping our pilots land so that we don't, uh, you know, crash land on top of something. And then we have the passengers or cargo to deal with. So on this deployment, where, where were you sent in Iraq? Uh, second deployment, I was sent to Baghdad. So I, I got my wish for the place that actually has a lot of action going on. Uh-huh. And what were your impressions of that versus your experience in Mosul? Uh, I realized that, again, my company commander was an idiot. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. My company was a VIP flight company. So essentially, we were the limousine for all of the senior officers for the 1st Armored Division, who was in charge of the the overall space. And with that, again, company commander seeking glory and ego uh, and a promotion. Uh, he would do absolutely everything to put our lives in danger so that we could fly one of these generals to a better dining facility, which is usually the reason we were moving them. Wow. Especially because at this time we had video tele video teleconference. So there's no need for the general to actually go out somewhere when they could just make a phone call. Right. But they probably see it, I'm sure as well. It shows that I'm, you know, out there amongst the, amongst the troops and, you know, going into dangerous places and whatever, rather than, yeah. And to do that, I'm exposing a whole bunch of the guys who are flying me around and protecting me to danger. Oh, yeah. I mean, first off, your description, again, reminds me of War Machine, which (laughs) is always a superiorly accurate description. But yeah, they we had this one general. I forget. I don't know any of their names anymore. But this guy, every single time we picked him up, he was just so angry. Like he was he always had his cup of coffee, which is weird because he's going on a helicopter. But uh, he was just always so angry. He refused to talk to us. He very frequently would cancel and not tell us. So, you know, as a flight crew, we have to get ready hours before we actually launch. So, I mean, we spend four or five hours getting ready, flying out there, only to be told as we're landing, oh, yeah, the general decided to take a Humvee instead. Nice. Uh, So, I mean, that's a minimum of eight pilot or – Four pilots, four crew chiefs, two Blackhawks. Uh, I think, I think I calculated it to about three thousand dollars an hour in fuel, and I do, I can't even begin to imagine what the maintenance cost actually is. But I mean, huge huge capital expense again to move officers around it's not you know if we're moving infantry around if we're moving uh you know passengers that are not being treated the same way the one of the really big incidents that made me realize again that my company commander was an idiot and they really just have absolutely no care for anything past their own promotion we have a minimum visibility that we can fly in and I think it's usually two miles, but we were always granted special permission to uh, go to one mile, just like we were granted special permission to fly more than we are supposed to medically because we're in war and it's super important. 
so our company commander, we had this one mission where the visibility was below one mile. And we called up the weather guys and they said that the visibility wasn't going to improve for at least four hours, which was two hours after the time we were supposed to pick up the general. So my company commander's solution was every 15 minutes, one of the helicopters would spin up, we would take off, we would do a traffic pattern to see if our visibility was better than one mile. It always wasn't. So then they'd turn around and they'd land. And then eventually, uh, our company commander decided that, oh, you know what? Now the visibility is a mile, so we're going anyway. And that was a pretty common occurrence for things that were not important. We were not running medical evacuations. We were not moving combat soldiers around. It was all just people that were considered very important. What was your perception just in terms of like the conditions, the city, et cetera, of Baghdad in comparison to Mosul? Was it just a bigger version of Mosul or was there any significant difference in just the overall look of things and the conditions? Oh, yeah. Baghdad Baghdad was massive. Now, I never flew in Mosul, but uh, Baghdad is far larger and – the amount of people and buildings was pretty problematic because these bases that we were landing in, I mean, I we're crossing over a road. I'm telling my pilot not to hit like wires. And I'm also pointing my machine gun at, you know, dozens of cars expecting one of them at some point to shoot at us. And I think that uh, subconsciously was probably one of the, biggest impactors on me because you get to a point that I flew 500 hours total in Baghdad, which is really a very small amount of hours for the compared to the rest of the company. But I mean, just day after day pointing a machine gun with the full intent to pull the trigger and eventually murder more than one person because I'm firing a machine gun from a helicopter. It's not a precise art at that point. But I mean, that that does weigh pretty heavy just to realize that so many people's lives were in my hand and there were plenty of stories of people, you know, saying that they felt threatened when pretty much everybody agrees that that was not the case did you during during this deployment where you're you're the crew chief in in the helicopter did you have any significant situations in which you were actually attacked or or came under fire or something like that uh thankfully we again were pretty lucky this was at a time that they didn't seem to really have the capabilities to be targeting uh the helicopters we were shot at but our biggest threat honestly came from our own people numerous times either the the commander or the maintenance or something like that would have severe problems that were unaddressed one of the first times was i was set up to be a crew chief on a maintenance flight for this helicopter that had been in service for a long time and had a really long bad history of maintenance problems And I showed up during the lunch period a couple hours early, 
and my pilot was already there and he said that he had done his inspection that I don't I don't have to check over the aircraft because he did it and that he he's going to lunch he'll be back and then we'll take off so I'm sitting there eating my lunch and one of our brand new door gunners shows up now door gunner is anybody that's not a crew chief who the only job they can do is sit there and shoot the gun but they still have to know all the components of the helicopter so I took him out to the helicopter that I was supposed to be on and I was going to show him the components when I Look down though, like I immediately noticed that there was a lot of problems because there was just trash everywhere, which is not something you want in the flight control deck of a helicopter. So I called the pilot and I told him that I, I, I didn't say that, hey, fuckhead, you messed a bunch of trash, which is not a good start to me looking over your inspection. But I told him that, you know, the aircraft is grounded until we actually do 100% inspection. So when they arrive, he comes back and he does a five-minute inspection. He says, all right, we're good. Get in the helicopter. And I tell him, no, that we need to do an actual full inspection where we tear the helicopter apart because it's not safe to fly in. And we end up going back and forth for some reason, uh, him saying, get in the helicopter, me saying no. And then eventually his response was, if you're too much of a pussy to get in the aircraft, go find me another crew chief that will get in the aircraft, which is a, again, a horrible statement considering he was the one who was supposed to be in charge of maintenance and safety. And then I went and I told our, the people in charge of the entire battalion's maintenance, uh, the QC shop, quality control, and the PC shop, which is production control. And I said, hey, you know, this helicopter's grounded. There's a bunch of problems. And the entire time that I finally got him to do the 100% inspection because I, I put the aircraft down with the battalion. And the entire time we're out there, he is just – he is talking like a kid in high school, just saying what a, what a, what a jerk I am. And eventually they did a – formation out there to talk about the situation and he turned around and was praising me as to how you know how diligent i was and yada 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 but then after that he never actually had the courage to come up and tell me that he was wrong or i mean have some type of a discussion about it that was just it and then on my third deployment another incident with with him would get me fired from being a, uh, a maintenance supervisor when I had been promoted. So uh, again, just numerous incidents that show a huge problem with the way some of the military is ran. Yeah. Was this a pilot like before, before this, this first incident, was this a pilot who like you had previously noticed had was, was kind of, you know, derelict about things or was this kind of out of the blue? I gave him a lot of credit because he was a relatively new maintenance test pilot. Uh, He had only come to us during the second deployment. This incident was in between my second and third deployment, but I had never really seen a huge problem with him. So it definitely took me back 
the the golden motto in aviation is that nobody – it doesn't matter if it's a private and a general. If the private sees the general is doing something wrong, he's supposed to say it, and that's supposed to be the end of it. Like it's supposed to get corrected. I, I guess you could go back to the see something, say something. Sure, yeah. I mean that's that's always been my experience of of pilots and anyone involved in aviation. I've got multiple you know family members, relatives who've – who've been in the air force, including a grandpa who was in it back when it was still the army air corps in the late forties. And, um, he, by the way, later went to work for the airlines and was also a private pilot. And I mean, every, every pilot I've known, they're always meticulous in their checklist and making sure everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. So, I mean, it really, it, it, this guy just sounds very, at least from the pilots I've known, just sounds very not typical. Okay, I'll come back to him in one second. Sure, but, no problem. Uh, your word of meticulous instantly makes me think of another pilot that we had in our in that deployment. We had uh, all of our weapons in the office. Uh, that's where we locked them all up when we when we're at the flight line. And his one of the pilot's weapons I noticed had a very shiny appearance to it, which I came to find out was soda that the pilot had spilled on his gun and he never cleaned it. (laughs) So uh, I've got a pilot with a weapon that if we were to crash land, which uh, my plan was always to take the pilot's weapon because the M4 is far better than the M16 that I had to carry. And yeah, I mean, he, he's flying around with soda sticking at his gun will not work but he i mean that's how disassociated uh, a lot of these pilots and crew chiefs were with the reality of war and i think it 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 shown to me a lot more because i had been infantry and then you know i'm showing up with guys that when we're going out on a mission they've got maybe two two magazines of ammo because they're saying it's uh, it's too heavy for me to carry Yet I'm walking around with 13 magazines because I'm overly paranoid. <laughs> and uh, the, our machine gun in the helicopter is the same machine gun that you have on the ground, the M24, M240. Uh, but in the helicopter, we have this attachment that turns the buttstock into the butterfly handles because the buttstock you can't use in the, in the Blackhawk. And I was the only person that had ever signed out the actual conversion kit to take the helicopter machine gun and put it back to a ground machine gun if we were to ever crash land and somehow survive. Right. Uh, because you can't use the butterfly machine gun. It, it's it's an absurd thing to try to use. And no one, no one knew it existed. No one ever signed it out. I started telling people about it. And uh, I mean, pretty much it was always blown off. I tried to get a bunch of Different training done, like different, you know, actually trying to go through scenarios of what if you are on the ground. Because the pilots go through that, but the crew chiefs don't. We don't go through any type of evasion courses. Right. So they're they're just kind of supposed to improvise if they ever if they ever crash. Oh yeah, I don't I don't think anybody ever really thought about crashing. And that was another thing that I think took a, a toll on my mind uh, because that's all I ever thought about. 
the entire time we were flying, it was like, oh, well, if we, if we get shot at and we land here, where would I go? Like I would just be running these mental exercises over and over and over, which I think made me a good soldier, but it's not a good human trait because every single thing that you look at, every single thing that you're thinking of is how is this going to kill you? Which again, when you come back to uh, civilian life, isn't a good way to think. Yeah, absolutely. So for the remainder of this deployment in Iraq, were there any other notable incidents or experiences that, at, whether at the time or in hindsight, you, you kind of think were made, made some major impact on you or kind of shook your paradigm a bit? So as crew chiefs, we were treated relatively decently with some leniency. Like we, we were able to wear flight suits, which were a godsend compared to the uh, actual uniform because it, it's, it's made of whatever the worst material on the face of the planet could be. Uh, it's just horrible. It smells. It's stiff. It uh, retains sweat as opposed to the flight suits, which were very, very thin. Like you could feel the air blowing through them. Uh, and I mean that was a really nice thing to have in the desert. Uh, the flight line was usually about 130 degrees that we were working on. Oof. So having a thin, yeah, having a thin uniform was a a really big benefit. Um, but I I ended up tearing my rotator cuff uh, on my second deployment, which put me down. And the moment I went down, I was pretty much dead to the entire company. They sent me to the maintenance company so that I could just sit there and have people be mad at me there and not take up a roster number uh, from the flight crew. So they and, so they, they blacklisted you, they ostracized you? Yes. How did you how did you injure your rotator cuff? Working out. Uh, I was oh, at the okay. gym and I think I was doing like bench press and uh, I went down and something felt horribly wrong. And I was able to put it back up. And then after that, it's pretty much been a lifelong, lifelong problem for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've got a little bit of a problem on one of my shoulders that it flares up every now and then when I just do a shoulder exercise with too much weight or do, you know, do it with bad form or whatever. Um, so, you know, it sounds like this is probably something a lot more severe than that, though. And so the attitude of your comrades I'm guessing is either either you're a dumbass for hurting yourself or you should just suck it up and go ahead and, you know, do your normal job anyway, despite the fact that you're injured. That exact mentality was given to me uh, several times. Uh, one of my pilots, actually, someone who that I did respect, she was a, a pilot who was a uh, enlisted before. So she was, I mean, she had a pretty good grasp on everything, but when I went down and I worked, I worked with my rotator cuff torn for several days before I I said that, Hey, I can't do this anymore. And I mean, I was to the point that I'm climbing up on the helicopter with one hand, which is a very uh, difficult task and I'm still doing my job. And she decided to come out and tell me how I, again, I was screwing everybody in the company, which is funny because she wasn't a crew chief. So I wasn't really screwing her over, but seeing how quickly 
the company decided to just drop me and I had been, I had gone to the promotion board and I was promotable and I was just waiting for having enough promotion points to be promoted to sergeant. And when this incident happened and I came back, uh, everybody started being really petty uh, about the things that I was doing. And long story short, they uh, ended up pulling my promotable status because all of the things that everybody else throughout the company does, they see me do it and I get my promotable status taken away. And the one of the frustrating things is my platoon sergeant said, hey, you know, this is bullshit. I don't know why they're doing this. Don't worry. I'll back you up and try to help you out. But then when I actually was called into the office, uh, he just kind of stared at me. He just stayed bum. And I, I actually looked at him. And I said, are you going to say anything to uh, tell me out here? And he said, no. So it's just kind of betrayal after betrayal. And the promotable thing didn't bother me that much uh, because I still ended up getting promoted. But it just kind of shows to the level of pettiness that the company will go down to where as long as you're a crew chief, they'll do whatever you do, whatever they can to help you out as long as you fly. But once you're not flying anymore, they toss you out pretty quickly, which again showed up again in my third deployment. So, so you finished up the remainder of the second deployment, basically what doing mechanical work? Yes. I, I was essentially just a normal mechanic, but for the longest time I couldn't do anything because of my rotator cuff being torn. So I basically just sat in the chair and got people parts if they needed it. And that was about all that I could do. Uh, and then right before the end of deployment, my shoulder was good enough that I was sent back to the flight company. Uh, and that's how I left my uh, second deployment. And then you came back to the States. And was it similar in between the first and second deployment as far as you're back to El Paso, you're, you're back in the States for a similar amount of time, all that? Uh, it was a lot harder because at this point I was married sure. uh, and the redeployment time again was cut very short because our, our deployment was pushed up three months and we were going to Afghanistan. So we had to go to Colorado to do uh, the high altitude training to prepare us because we were flying pretty much at ground level in Baghdad as opposed to Afghanistan, where we are flying through the mountains. We were just at the base of the Hindu Kush and going to Colorado for 21 days again was another one of those situations that I kind of felt really uh, disposable. I was late to going to Colorado, so I missed about three or four days uh, because my wife was pregnant. And because of that, my helmet was not fitted with the bracket that holds the oxygen tank because once we go over 10,000 feet or 9,000 feet, we're supposed to have an oxygen tank and it kind of goes into our nose and it's more of a nasal cannula, but it's still supplemental oxygen. I never had this bracket put on so I went the entire uh, time in Colorado flying at 10,000 feet 
with no supplemental air, which didn't really, it, I mean, it wasn't a problem because it wasn't that high to be uh, a significant factor. But again, one of the situations where there's a problem and there's nothing done to correct it to, because by the time I got there, I said, oh, well, all the stuff is back in the, uh, is back in Texas. And in Texas, I was told they have all the stuff in Colorado. So it's just the back and forth game of eventually no one wants to take responsibility and things don't get done because of that. Were you, were you still feeling at this point that, that uh, your comrades in the unit were like the, that they still kind of saw you as, as a black sheep or a shirker or something like that for your, for the time that you were, you know, uh, injured in, in Iraq? Like, did, did you still get that impression that they had kind of a negative attitude towards you? Towards the end? No, because a lot of the people left and we started getting in, uh, new faces and I kind of just blended in with the old guys who went on the last deployment. Uh, and kind of by that time I was in, I guess you'd call it the click of just everybody kind of being on equal ground. So at that point, me being injured didn't uh, play a big thing because I would go from between being injured and I would have pretty good bouts of time where I would be smart enough to got not re-injure myself. Then you're deployed again, but this time to Afghanistan. Yes. So what what are your impressions? What are your experiences of, you know, getting there for the first time and... I don't know, just, just how everything, how everything looks, how everything feels, how different it is from Iraq. What's, what's your overall experience on that? Afghanistan was a lot harder, uh, just because a lot of things were less convenient in Iraq. We could walk to the flight line. We could walk to the dining hall, dining facility within usually a mile or two miles in Afghanistan. Our flight line was, we had to go around the entire uh, runway to get to where we were. We didn't have cars or anything, so we had to rely on what you would call, uh, I guess, public transportation. They just had these little vans that drove around every 30 minutes or an hour. And it was about a 45-minute bus ride from where we lived to the actual flight line. And because of that distance, we obviously couldn't go to the main dining facility So they kind of had this little mess tent that they made up. But most of our cooks were pretty lazy. And we ended up not having food quite often. We also ended up having no hygiene facilities. So when you go into the dining facility, there's supposed to be a little uh, hand-washing station. Usually it was out of water or it was out of soap which is really unfortunate for the mechanics because our hands are constantly soaked in hydraulic fluid or grease or engine oil and not being able to wash your hands before that uh, definitely introduces a lot of chemicals and toxins that you shouldn't be introducing to your body. But of course, you know, being young and dumb, we, we thought, Oh, you know, it's a badge of honor that we're eating hydraulic fluid. Nice. Uh, Yeah. So on this deployment, were you back to being a crew chief or were you still a mechanic? Um, I was a crew chief and then my – so I I guess we should back up. Um, okay. My wife was pregnant when I deployed and 
her due date was, I think, a month and a half out. And I asked, you know, hey, can I be held back so that I can be here for the birth and then send me back later? And I was told no, which later out later on, I find out that the maintenance test pilot who tried to kill me, his wife was pregnant due two weeks after my wife and they let him stay back. So that definitely put me into a really bad mood. Sure. Uh, things in up. my things in my life and my family life were going uh, pretty terribly. And my wife went to the doctor for one of her checkups. My wife is a high risk pregnancy because she has a uh, a blood disorder. So knowing that it was a high risk pregnancy, having to be sent to Afghanistan and on one of her checkups, a intern told her that our son was uh, dying from a disease called fetal high drops, which is basically where the the infant swells up with water and just dies. So I was told this, and there's several layers to it because my wife told me, and uh, I obviously asked for an emergency leave. And I was told no. Not only was I told no, but then I found out that my company commander's wife, who was the leader of the family readiness group, complained to my wife saying that she had no business telling me that my son might be dying because that takes my head out of the game and I'm screwing everybody over because I'm too busy worrying about the fact that my child might be dead. And that's a little more important to me than flying around generals so they can have better dining. Wow. That's cold. Oh yeah. So I go to my, <laughs> I go to my company commander and now I'm not, uh, the punch you in the face kind of guy. I'm not, I'm not very, I'm not the aggressive type, but I was in my company commander's face ready to knock the shit out of him because he, his wife was yelling at my wife because our child was dying, and then he was denying me uh, emergency leave. So it culminated to a pretty big, disastrous impact on my life. Thankfully, it turned out that the intern had no idea what he was talking about, and everything was perfectly fine. But the, I guess the 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 last seeds of a trail were kind of uh, planted with that. So thankfully everything went well. I ended up going on leave and I was there for the birth, thankfully. And then I came back. When I returned back to the company in Afghanistan, I was promoted the next month. And so I was serving as the uh, night maintenance uh, supervisor. About a couple weeks after I get back, we have a – I'm taking over the maintenance for the nighttime – and the daytime maintenance pilot tells me the things that he wants me to accomplish. One of the things was an engine was swapped on one of the helicopters and they needed to do a test flight to make sure that it wasn't still leaking. So I told my crew chief this and his pilots didn't listen to him, which wasn't uncommon. And they went off and they took a flight and then they came back because lo and behold, they smelled uh, fuel leaking. So I went up on the aircraft, I looked at it, and it was indeed leaking uh, from a packing that was not installed properly. Looking through the, the log of the maintenance that had been done, I couldn't find anything about the 
uh, engine being disconnected. So I go to the uh, production control and I say, hey, the helicopter's down because it's still leaking. And the response I was given was, what do you mean it's leaking? And I, I say, hey, they said the, ma- the engine was swapped and they had no record of it. So we figured that it was just a computer problem because it, it was frequent that the computers would crash and lose everything. So we have to like rebuild the entire file uh, of the maintenance that had been performed. So I put it off on the back burner. We get, we get it repaired. And when my shift is over and the NCO who's in charge of night shift uh, came to me and I said, Hey, you know, we went to go uh, do the test flight. The engine was leaking o- or leaking fuel. And at that point, this guy explodes on me. Now, me and him didn't get along, uh, but like it was always a professional kind of relationship. But he just he is screaming in uh, my face. And then one of my other NCOs comes and he just kind of gets sucked into the uh, the black hole of screaming. So we sit there for a while listening to him scream. And I don't even know what he was screaming about, quite honestly, because it was just so absurd that he was screaming when he had fucked up some type of maintenance. But we had crew chiefs for the Apache companies from about 150 feet away coming over to our tent to see what all the screaming was about. And it got to the point that I – the end of a 14-hour work, work day and a 20-hour overall day – you tend to have less than the best uh, tact. But I said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going home and maybe tomorrow we can talk about this like men. So I leave and then I show up for my next shift and I am greeted with uh, one of my NCOs who says, "Uh, hey, you disrespected uh, Sergeant so-and-so. And we're kicking you out of the company. And again, it was kind of a repeat of last time. I said, do you want to hear my side of the story? Because you haven't like talked to me about it. And I was told no. And so kind of, again, me pointing out safety problems, because it is an absolute no that you cannot fly without, or I'm sorry, you can't perform maintenance without writing it down because otherwise you never know what was done and pointing out a safety issue like that ended up getting me fired, which really, really dampened my spirits to think that the people that are in charge and are supposed to be in safety or in charge of safety, just chuck it to the wind to benefit the people that they are more uh, aligned with. Mm hmm. Yeah, so then you basically get in trouble for trying to do your job. Yes. Nobody ever talked about the fact that he did what he did, did maintenance without writing it up. Because, I mean, as far as the aviation world is concerned, that's illegal. You're supposed to lose your job for that. And my aviation unit was falling apart uh, on the third deployment there is a rather famous video of a Apache uh, in Afghanistan doing a bunch of crazy stunts. And eventually it 
crashes into the ground and goes flying through the air. And it's on YouTube. It's been around for some time. And that was my unit. We also had uh, an Apache pretty much blow up on the uh, on a training flight. The maintenance on that aircraft had not been done properly either, and there was something wrong with the drive shaft. And we just heard basically the helicopter tear itself apart. And we ran out there. The, the, the two pilots were still alive, but the blade had come down and taken off the canopy uh, and it had scalped the up the upper seat pilot. So one of the per, one of the people that got there before me took off their jacket and basically uh, tied it around his head to try to stop the bleeding. And one of our senior NCOs came out and started screaming at that soldier because he wasn't in uniform. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, and then ours our. our uh, our surgeon, our flight doctor, uh, he was just standing there with his arms crossed because he had no idea how to handle the, to the respond to the situation at hand. And then in another one of the long stories of horrible things that I can talk about, one of the CH-47s, the, the Chinook, the big banana-looking one, mm-hmm. um, they were doing a flight with pretty much all of the important people in the battalion – and uh, they were over the active at about 30 feet. And one of their crew chiefs was not strapped into the helicopter. And she leaned out of the, the cargo hatch to resecure something with their cargo hook. And she ended up falling out of the helicopter, falling 30 feet, fracturing a bunch of her ribs. And uh, again, something that should never have happened because there's absolutely no reason to not be strapped into the aircraft. But yeah, that happened. Do you think that uh, there was, to some degree, just sort of fatigue setting in in general, causing people to be sloppy, or do you think it was it was just this this culture of like people not wanting to point out problems, or both, or what? What do you think was going on to cause all this stuff to happen? Um, I don't know. I th- I think there were a lot of problems. Uh, definitely, everybody was burnt out. And uh, it was also just the culture that nobody seemed to care about the things that we were supposed to care about. When I got fired, I was sent to uh, I was sent to the maintenance company, and I was told that the NCO that I was going to have uh, above me was a jackass, just like everyone else. But uh, this was the point that I really just – I gave absolutely no shit about being in the Army anymore because of everything that had happened. Um, And, you know, everybody works a minimum of a 12-hour shift. We can't sleep. And in the maintenance company, we we never had a day off. We never had an hour where there wasn't something to do. We were in charge of the maintenance of 23 Blackhawks, I think. And – I mean, we, we had 15 people, maybe, and we were typically working on about four helicopters at a time. So we were spread really thin. And my or the NCO above me liked to sleep on his uh, shift a lot. And everybody knew about it. Nobody did anything. Um, and it wasn't until it was winter 
the hangars that we were working in were just tents in Afghanistan, and we had no heaters whatsoever because all the heaters were German, and the Germans refused to come over to our side to actually fix the heaters. So we're doing maintenance at night in about 10, 10 degree weather, and you can't wear gloves turning wrenches, and you're holding on to a freezing bar of metal that is the wrench. Uh, so I had to rotate the soldiers in and out of our tent so that they could at least warm up in the tent where we where we actually have a heater in our little office. And so I'm I'm running around. I'm managing four different aircraft repairs. I'm doing air, doing maintenance on a helicopter myself. And about six hours into the day, this NCO comes out and screams for me to come over and uh, says that I need to be rotating everybody in and out. And I point out to the fact to him that if he was awake, he would have known that I had already been doing that. And from that point forth, me and him had a really big deal. Like I tried to always be as respectful as possible. And like, I never yell at anybody in front of everybody else unless somebody's like about to kill somebody with something so horribly wrong that they're doing. But this guy had no, uh, no decency. Again, you shouldn't be watching your, your supervisors yell at each other, but this guy just, I don't know. He had no ability to distinguish when the proper time for that kind of, uh, response is, but thankfully he got fired because he did some, he just started hitting the helicopter with a hammer, trying to remove the cargo hook, which is something you can't do. Uh, and he just ended up destroying the entire thing. And after that, we saw very little of him because they finally got the hint. Well, once he was out of the picture, were you able to just kind of keep your head down and, and kind of do the rest of your time or... Yeah, I've, I finished the rest of my time, and I didn't really have a problem after that as far as the upper leadership. But the soldiers that I had, these guys were completely worn out. I had one who had serious mental problems, uh, but we couldn't do anything because he was one of our better mechanics. And one of my other NCOs was going through a divorce, and he was utterly useless to the point that we had a time that I, I needed to put in an extra couple hours because this was right after the Apache blew up on the runway. Uh, so we had the big safety speech that was never actually uh, followed. And I asked him, you know, can you stay and help me out so that I don't have to stay here for this extra time uh, when we could get it done in half the time? And he just said no. And he just walked off. It's just a reoccurrence of people being burnt out, people not wanting to do their job, and being ran mostly by, by mostly by people that have absolutely no concept of how to manage time, people, and lives. And there wasn't a sense among them that they were doing important jobs to help protect our freedom? Starting from the fact that I was flying generals around to uh, – 
different dining facilities, it's hard to, it's hard to think that you're doing anything for freedom. Although I will say I met Mark Henry, the, uh, the wrestler, and I got a pretty cool picture with him. And I met, uh, who's the Steve Austin. Yeah. I met Steve Austin. He, he was a dick. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the end of that deployment. Uh, and I was only in the army for about a year and a half later, uh, when I redeployed, uh, my shoulder was injured again when I was redeploying. So I went and they gave me a MRI and they said, Hey, your shoulder's fine. Quit being a pussy. When I get to my next duty station, uh, which was up in Alaska, uh, about two days in, I was doing pushups and I tore my rotator cuff again. I went to the doctors and they got another MRI and the surgeon came to me and she says, why haven't you had surgery on your shoulder before? And uh, I told her that, you know, just a couple months ago, they said that my shoulder was perfectly fine. And she, she told me that, no, my shoulder, like I had arthritis in it. I had fraying of the tent or fraying of, uh, uh, I forget what it is, but one of the fibers in the shoulder and it was so bad that they're like, you're, you, you're going to be medically retired because you can't work like this. Uh, there's no job that you can do. Um, actually, sorry. (laughs) I would be retired first on my, uh, my shoulder. But then as I was going through the medical process, things got really bad with my, uh, wife one night and we were arguing and it, uh, definitely got to one of those points that, it was one of the first times that I really contemplated uh, suicide and it was very little that kept me from actually doing it pretty much just not wanting to be an inconvenience to my wife once, uh, once she woke up. But thankfully uh, it never actually happened. But uh, that was definitely the point where my wife and I realized that there was a problem uh, what led up to it was I ended up asking for a divorce because I, I told her that, you know, I know that there's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but I don't want to bring you and the kids down with whatever this is. And I think divorce is the best thing. And uh, thankfully, she said no. Um, but I mean, I, I, I thought really long and hard and came very close to killing myself. But that incident, thankfully, was a really big wake-up call that, hey, there's something seriously wrong with me and with the way things are going. And that eventually led to being diagnosed with the PTSD. Mm -hmm. So did you – were you able to get out of the Army at that point? Uh, It would be about a a year later that I would be uh, discharged – and very quickly realized that even on or on the outside is no different on the inside. Within two months of me being uh, discharged, we had filed bankruptcy and we had foreclosed on both of the homes that we owned. We were homeless and we went from making roughly $100,000 a year because the pay in Alaska is really high because of the cost of living. And my wife was working at the same time, but we went from that to making $12,000 a year uh, with a family of four, which is far below poverty. 
So when you were discharged, you you moved out of Alaska. Yeah, we had to move because we couldn't we couldn't afford to live there anymore. Uh, yeah. The the housing community definitely wants you to buy houses, and somehow, even though we ha- only had about two thousand dollars in our bank account when we moved to Alaska, they let us buy a three hundred thirty thousand uh, dollar cabin in the woods which turned out to be a really bad idea to purchase hmm. for some wow. reason. So shortly after you left the army, you left Alaska and then how did, how did things go from there? Uh, it, things continued to spiral downward for me uh, and my family, you know, everything just kind of kept getting worse and worse, especially being homeless. That, that causes a, uh, a lot of problems and it got to a point that I was pretty much thinking about killing myself every single day because there would be a new problem that gets stacked upon the old ones. If we were able to get one thing, uh, fixed, it just kept seeming as though we could never get our head above water. And it was because the VA refused to do their job, uh, of actually diagnosing the, the veterans that are returning with the problems that they do. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's been four years since I've gotten out and they finally put me at a hundred percent, but they still try to deny my, my TBI. They said that it was not caused by my military service, even though I have documentation saying that it did happen. Uh, they just continue to deny it because, that's the easiest way for the VA to handle a lot of these circumstances. And that's why you hear about the, the, the death list uh, every so often from these VA hospitals that aren't doing uh, medical care for veterans. Now, sorry, uh, TBI. Can, oh, sorry. Uh, traumatic brain injury uh, concussion. Okay. Well, uh, it looks like we are running short on time. So unfortunately, we're going to have to have to stop here, but I definitely want to have you back on one more time to tell the rest of your story in terms of what you've been uh, dealing with since since getting out of the army and all that sort of thing. So um, thanks again, BT, for talking with me, and I look forward to talking with you again to get the rest of the story. Thanks, CJ. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. 
and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.